The views expressed in this interview are those of the individuals and do not reflect the official policy or position of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy, or the Naval Postgraduate School. The Trident Room has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at tridentroompodcasthost at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu backslash Trident Room Podcast. Welcome to the Trident Room, brewer of stout conversation, unfiltered and on tap. In today's podcast, NPS student Joe Novak sits down and has a drink with Dr. Jennifer A. Heisel. Did you get much time to explore Chicago while you were there? Yeah, so I spent, right after college, I spent three years in Chicago doing consulting. Oh, okay, cool. Um, just working for a firm that helped universities manage their money okay. uh, a little bit better, a little mm-hmm. more wisely. But that was not the thing that I wanted to do long term. Mm-hmm. Okay. For, well, it's boring. <laughs> and uh, they were doing some good work, but I uh, didn't feel like I was helping the world all that much. Okay. Um, um, so I went back and got a master's degree at Duke, got a master of public policy. Um, and so moved down to Durham, um, had a great time, and realized along the way in Durham that I loved research and I was really good at research. I knew I was good with numbers, um, but the research side of things was really a passion of mine. And I discovered I could have a whole career doing research. And so uh, after that, rather than going and working in DC, where a lot of my uh, classmates went, I instead headed up to Northwestern and got my PhD in development and social policy. And why then? Uh, Why then or why? Why human development and social policy? uh, Human development and social policy. So I chose that program mainly because of the person who ended up being my advisor. He was an Mm. economist uh, who is focused on the economics of education. And at the time, I was really interested and thought I exclusively wanted to work in the world of education and evaluating what policies and practices could improve education uh, in states, local governments, or at the the federal level even. And so I I chose Northwestern um, because of my advisor. But uh, along the way, it just happened to be this really interdisciplinary, unique program. It wasn't an econ PhD. It wasn't a psychology PhD. It was um, this this uh, unique combination that was really focused on interdisciplinary work. And so uh, I had to, in the, the just the process of getting the, the degree, uh, take some psychology classes and it just opened up my thinking to a a, a different way of seeing the world and different ways of coming at problems just besides you know the econometric approach of um, using math to figure out did x cause y or not Uh, and so i had a co-advisor emma adam on my uh, uh, phd committee and she was an expert in or is an expert in cortisol and sleep. And so she kind of helped add that component to what I was already doing with this, my primary advisor, David Figlio, uh, in the economics of education. And they had a, this really nice combination of skills and interests, and um, I kind of helped bridge the, the, the gap between them. And so I was able to, to make this really unique and interesting um, set of papers for my dissertation uh, that uh, I don't think would have been possible anywhere but in this unique 
interdisciplinary program because it wouldn't have been economics enough or econ. It was too much psych. It would have been strange for a psychology program, but there it just fit. And there was this nice chance to kind of combine these worlds, um, which is uh, fantastic for me. Um, uh, I'm really glad I had the opportunity to be up there and do that. You know, you bring up inter interdisciplinary. Uh, I'm in the human systems integration program, and uh, kind of what you said is exactly why I love the HSI program because it's super interdisciplinary, um, and that's part of the reason that I wanted to do this podcast as well is because NPS, while you might think about it as you know the MIT of uh, of the DoD or the Navy, it's really quite inter interdisciplinary here just on this campus. Um, I had no idea that you were here and, you, you know, the, the kinds of things you uh, study and, and look into, and yet you're just across campus. And, and you know, that's part of the magic, in my opinion, of, of NPS is that we're so interdisciplinary here, um, including my program, Human Systems Integration. It's um, part SE, part operations research, part uh, acquisitions process, et cetera, et cetera. So you appreciate the interdisciplinary flavor. Tell me what brought you to NPS. The data. The data is just unique from kind of the, the econ side of my resume. Uh, pulls a lot of, sort of pre-existing data and then analyzing policies and practices that have been put into place and figuring out what work didn't work quite as well. And the DOD level of um, data is unique in the world. Is that right? And I mean, at least unique in the United States. We were in um, Sweden, maybe they would track these things, and as a researcher I would have access to them. But in the United States, it's very rare to have a group of people where we can see what is happening with their lives, whether it's their family development, um, as they get married or divorced or have children, um, and combined with what's happening in their work lives, combined with what's happening um, in their health records, it's just that's not something that you can track in the civilian population. But here in the DOD, that is available through the active duty folks. And obviously the work that I'm doing, it's all de-identified. I can't track you, know, you down <laughs> and identify who you are. Uh, but kind of at the, the macro level, I can answer questions that are interesting to me, like what happens to the health of mothers when uh, she gives birth for the first time? What happens to the health of fathers? when uh, the, their, their significant other gives birth um, and they add a dependent to their home. Those are interesting, important questions for both the civilian and the active duty worlds, but you can't answer those very well with civilian data because at scale, there's no data um, available that kind of longitudinally tracks people over time. You can maybe do a survey after the fact, but there's all sorts of biases involved with who, you know, um, uh, might answer those surveys or um, have the time to do that sort of thing, especially after having a baby. But uh, the DOD is this unique um, institution where there's just a lot of interesting things happening. There's also interesting policies happening. Like they, they rolled out maternity leave. They went from you know six to 18 to 12 weeks of maternity leave. And then you can start to ask, all right, well, we, we know that um, having a baby affects mother's health, but does having this additional maternity leave available change those outcomes? Are her uh, outcomes better or worse following uh, uh, birth if she has more time to recover? Uh, and th those, again, in the 
civilian world aren't questions you can ask because there are often there aren't very many times when you see a new program like that put into place at a massive scale. You might see some company roll out some new program, but the sort of people who work at a company that provides maternity leave are very different than the sorts of people who work at a company that does not provide maternity leave. Um, managers are much more likely, like kind of manager level people. Folks with college degrees are much more likely to work at the sort of places that would offer maternity leave compared to people who just have a high school uh, education, for instance. But people with college degrees and high school degrees are very different for a whole host of reasons. And you can't say that it's you know just access to maternity leave that affects the reason why uh, their outcomes are different. And so this sort of external policy change that we have in the DOD where there was a sudden switch from six to 18 weeks is a unique opportunity to see, does this policy work. And that can have implications not just for the DOD itself, but also for the civilian world uh, as well. Interesting. I'd never thought about that. Is that a known thing out in the civilian world that the DOD is this treasure trove of data? No, I had no idea. So I it's mean, kind of a hidden secret. It's this little hidden secret. So, I mean, if it, people stopped and thought about it, they would probably realize that there was a bunch of data there. But most civilians aren't going to have access to that. Um, I discovered all that was available and what sort of data um, you you can have access to as a uh, Department of the Navy civilian employee like doing academic work here at NPS when I came to campus to visit. It wasn't something that I was specifically searching out NPS for. Uh, I wasn't, I must work at uh, DOD University, I'm going to work at, you know, um, uh, Army or Navy or NPS uh, because I want this data. It was something that I discovered in the process of uh, interviewing out here. And you know, when I was weighing the options in the end, that was a, a really big positive for me, just the, the, the cool access to the, the data and the sort of interesting policy relevant, hopefully useful questions I could ask for that. The students are also fantastic, so that helps too. That's, that's, <laughs> good I, to hear. That's, that's good, yeah. So now I'm just sucking up to the audience. <laughs> <laughs> so you have no military background. Uh, how did you, or how are you learning about the culture of the military, the DOD, uh, you know, what's relevant, what's not to the, the foot soldiers? Yeah. Uh, I ask questions all the time. I show up early to class uh, when we had class in session uh, and just talk to people because I don't know the whole world of the military yet. I've been here about three years. And um, I'm constantly learning new things from my students. And I see them as experts in the, what they are experts in. Uh, I can teach them statistics, and like, that's my area of expertise. But uh, uh, they're also bringing their own experiences and information to the table. And I find that really useful. Just um, from the beginning, I've tried to ask as many questions as possible uh, from them and ask, you know, what do you think is a useful question for the military? Or, you know, when I, um, now that my students, like my first batch of students have graduated and they are back in the fleet, um, it's nice being able to contact them and say, well, what, what should I be looking at? Like, what is useful uh, uh, for the world? You mentioned the importance of your mentor. Uh, back with your higher education, what uh, what did you le learn from your mentors that you're applying to NPS students now? Both of my mentors brought different things to the table, which was really nice uh, for for me. They had different skill sets um, and um, different ways of going about mentoring. Most of my 
students here. It's, I'm their primary uh, advisor, and so it's just me. So I try to bring the best of, of all worlds to that. And so I try to push them all. If you're going to be here, you're going to spend a year and a half or more on campus learning. You better get as much as you can out of it. Um, but at the same time, make sure that it's an enjoyable experience and hopefully like they're going to get something out of it that will be useful down the road as well not just torturing them for the sake of torturing them uh, but you know making them think about the world a little bit differently and so maybe they get pushed harder than they would want to be initially if they were they were given the option um, but still have plenty of time to enjoy the experience while they're here Right. So I have a lot of Marines, and mm -hmm. the, the Marines have to like, try to convince to go take a motorcycle ride or something because they're just, <laughs> uh, they'll, they'll work too hard. I don't mm -hmm. know. But. <laughs> so you have tons of articles already published, tons on Google Scholar. Um, how, do you, how do you maintain your pace of, of, of publication? Uh, how do you get to that, that level of, uh, of, of academic output? Um, 2017 seemed to be a frenetic year for you as far as publications. I also had a baby that year, so that was just oh, a geez. lot going on. Um, the academic publishing process, especially in economics, is long. And so a paper that I initially submit to a journal um, in 2015 might not get published until 2017. Um, so some of that's actually reflecting work from earlier. And depending on what journal it is, things, you know, come out at different times. But the, the broad goal, kind of long-term thinking, is just to have things at different stages at all times, like a, an idea that I'm developing and just sort of like poking around uh, on uh, a, an, a project where I'm cleaning the data and like doing that sort of, you know, intense data cleaning work uh, because that takes a different part of my brain than the more creative brainstorming sort of strategy, one where I am uh, doing the writing because that's a totally different uh, way of thinking about the world, and then hopefully things that are just kind of working their way through the review process, scientific review, where I'm getting feedback and they're saying, you know, we reject your paper, but you should do these things instead, or we accept your paper as long as you do these things, um, kind of those final stage things. So I try to have paper spread through, uh, throughout that spectrum, um, so everything's always moving forward. There's never a point where I'm questioning what do I do next, because there's clearly one of those things, need, like one of those uh, papers and one of those categories needs some action on it, so I'm always trying to move things forward. Having fantastic colleagues and co-authors is also really helpful in that process, too, for sure. What's your favorite article that you've published? So my favorite paper is joint work with Sam Norris. He is now at the University of Chicago, but when we started the paper, we were both at Northwestern as graduate students. And um, so this paper was using the fact that your sleep patterns are at least partially regulated by signals from the sun. So if you're on the eastern side of the time zone boundary, say, you are likely to stay up later. Uh, compared to if you're on the central side of the time zone boundary. And we were looking at elementary and middle school and high school kids, and we could see them move across the time zone boundary in Florida. The thought being, you know, if they're in the eastern side, they're going to stay up later. But on either side of the time zone boundary, schools were starting at about the same time according to the clock on the wall. And so like, they have to wake up, even though the eastern kids are staying up later. We show using national data that, in fact, um, kids on the eastern side of the time zone boundary um, were getting less sleep. 
And then using the, the Florida data, we demonstrated that those Eastern time zone kids, even though the schools were the same, the school start times uh, were similar, uh, but those kids that we'd expect were getting less sleep uh, tended to do substantially worse on their academic performance. Substantially. Wow. Um, and that it was particularly tied to adolescence. And so girls go through puberty a couple of years before boys. And we saw like the, the start times or the, the sunlight signals um, start to matter for the girls a couple of years before the boys, which is exactly the time frame that you'd predict, like when they're going through puberty. Uh, so this nice combination of sort of uh, theory guided by psychology, so that side of my resume, but using this econometric approach from the, the econ world uh, and working with Sam, who was a, a PhD student in econ, um, so it kind of combined those two in a really nice way. And so I like that one just because it's really representative of this interdisciplinary program that I came from. Are there any articles or, or work you've put out that you'd rather have not or that would change <laughs> or maybe that you've, you've, you, you've had a eureka moment after the fact uh, that would have changed what you published? So my master's thesis from Duke, it turns out the data was just wrong. Mm. Like, I didn't know it, but just there was something with some of the data linkages that was wrong. And so it was a master's thesis. It wasn't published in like, academic journal or anything. But when I discovered the wrongness, I was so deeply embarrassed. I had to go to my, my advisor at Northwestern. What do I do? I, this is totally wrong. Like everything that I thought I knew about, it was about virtual education. And um, everything I thought I knew and had discovered and was so excited about was completely wrong. Um, he's like, it's fine. It was a master's thesis. It's, it's, it's okay. Like these things happen. There's no retraction for this sort of thing. Um, but it's a good lesson to have learned now to always check every bit of your data. Uh, and that, I don't even know what, uh, like the data linkages that the, the, the had been provided to me were completely off. Um, so I don't even know how I could have figured it out. But um, once I got the real data, um, I spent a lot of time cleaning it. And now I'm, all, I'm very uh, obsessed with cleaning and making sure my data is uh, uh, looking good before I even think about publishing anything. So that was probably a good lesson to have learned early on. Um, sure. But yeah. yeah, beware of that uh, 2012 master's <laughs> thesis of mine. Um, but, uh, yeah, but the, the updated paper um, uh, came out and had a really nice design I liked a lot. Um, so there's this one county in, so this is the real data now, <laughs> not, not the wrong data, the real data. Uh, there's one county in North Carolina that had suddenly switched from having no Algebra 1 for its eighth graders to having Algebra 1 for eighth graders, but that was exclusively offered in a virtual platform. So um, there's this nice, again, sort of a, pol a sharp policy switch, much like we were talking about with the DOD and the maternity leave change, um, where we could see what happened as um, uh, we sh these kids who had no choice in the matter, they were just shifted from one uh, set of opportunities and set of um, uh, uh, methods of teaching them algebra to a totally different thing. And we could watch within the county how scores changed 
uh, for the kids who were suddenly induced into this online platform. We could also compare to the rest of North Carolina who didn't have these sort of changes. They all, like if you were in North Carolina and you were a high achieving kid in pretty much any other county in the state, you would have been in Algebra 1 in eighth grade, but it would have been in a traditional classroom. And we could see, like do these multiple comparisons to see for these kids that had this change in their, their, their um, set of available courses to take, what happened to their test scores? And we see this large drop in their Algebra 1 performance, um, just indicating that you know, shifting them into this online platform resulted in way worse test scores for them. But they were high achievers, so they still passed. Uh, they still passed their algebra test. They were still able to you know, move on and do whatever they were going to do in high school. But they did not get the sort of high scores that we would have expected from these sort of high achievers which was in sharp contrast to what the proponents of this virtual platform were saying. They're saying, oh, look, everyone's passing this, this program. This program's great, but like, these kids shouldn't just be passing. They should be like, high scores. Um, and so actually, right now, I'm doing some work with Tom Ahn, who's um, in the Graduate School of Defense Management with me, and we're sort of trying to follow up on what happened to these kids. I looked at what happened to their Algebra 1 scores. We want to know what happens to their course taking in high school. Do they take more or fewer um, math classes? Uh, how well do they do in the ACT? Is like, what, are, what are their longer term outcomes? So hmm. I'm working on that right now. Follow up. Yeah. Seems pretty, <laughs> people are interested in that one uh, right now with the sudden switch to <laughs> kids going online. Absolutely. Um, yeah. A lot of your work is particularly relevant in, you know, it's, June 30th, 2020, as we're um, recording this, and a lot of your work seems very relevant, and we're gonna talk about some more in a little bit. But speaking of high, um, high scores and high achievers, tell me about uh, your article entitled, The Navy Needs a Fully Baked P Plan for Cannabis <laughs> Legislation. Hi, indeed. Um, so that one came, so that was Aaron Cummins, who's in the Navy, um, he's one of our Navy students, and that was his thesis. And his point is just that it is highly likely that the, uh, marijuana is going to be legalized nationally at some point soon. If it's going to be legalized nationally, we just need to have a plan in place for how we can deal with that. And so um, he did a great job just laying out some sort of options and weighing pros and cons of different policies. And um, he, we, we ultimately came down on, you know, not a, a full ban is probably not going to be the most effective strategy. Um, so trying to find some cases where, or, or a set of policies similar to what Canada is doing, where there are restrictions in place, certainly, especially if you're going to be doing something dangerous, um, but also being able to if, if it's a legal substance, being able to use it if it is something that you either want to do or is medically beneficial for you, potentially. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So two of your articles that have been cited 200 plus times um, and were written or at least published in 2015 and 16 um, are particularly relevant right now, I think. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about them. The, the two titles are Psychological and Biological Responses to Race-Based Social Stress as Pathways to Disparities in Educational Outcomes. And the other is Developmental Histories of Perceived Racial Discrimination in Diurnal Cortisol Profiles in Adulthood, a 20-year prospective study. So those 
titles are mouthfuls. <laughs> <laughs> but so those were like firmly in the world of psychology, working with um, my co-author on both of those was Emma Adam, who's my co-advisor at Northwestern. Um, uh, and so both of those were just trying to figure out the relationship between um, race-based discrimination and what that does to your body. Um, how does experiencing discrimination, kind of the phrase is get under the skin, uh, which just means affect you internally. And one of the pathways by which it might affect you is the stress hormone cortisol. Um, cortisol gets a bad rap because everyone knows it's the stress hormone, but it's there to protect you. It's supposed to be there so that you can kind of get ready to face a stressful situation at hand and, and focus your attention on it. Um, the problem is if you're always stressed um, and your cortisol is always highly activated, that can start to have potentially negative consequences for your, your health long term. Um, and so both of those papers we're looking at pathways by which race-based discrimination sort of activates that cortisol response in ways that can um, have negative long-term repercussions for your health. So what are you most excited about? Uh, what research are you most excited about with the Navy and with the DOD? So I was really lucky and really happy to receive funding from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to work on this project that I mentioned earlier on maternity leave as well as childcare access within the DOD and how those sorts of programs can uh, are associated with um, outcomes for new moms and dads. We really care about that in the civilian sector, but like I said, it's hard to get the data. And there's this unique opportunity here in the DOD to figure it out, like know what's going to go on. And so I have access to health records, um, on, again, anonymized, so don't worry. Um, health records, so I can see like what like is, is there a change in, you know, diagnoses of postpartum depression as we move from um, different levels of maternity leave. I can see um, your um, run times, right? I can see run times. Like, do uh, just having more time at home help the moms like get back to their their uh, pre-pregnancy run times faster, or you know their their um, uh, physical fitness test scores, do those change um, you know, kind of for moms before versus after these policy changes? I can also look at job performance, right? Because the DOD tracks all sorts of job performance metrics. Um, and I can see if there's any changes to those job performance metrics um, under those different policy regimes. Um, and actually, I mean, just preliminarily, we do show that the dad, like dads, for instance, um, run substantially slower in those first couple of months after um, the baby is born, but then they get back to normal fairly quickly, right? There's this an immediate hit of uh, kind of, um, there's, a, there's this immediate hit to their run times, let's say, um, or other physical fitness measures, but then they get back to normal. Moms, uh, we tracking them even like 24 months out, never get back to normal. So they drop much, much more substantially, um, obviously. And they don't have to take, they don't have to go running uh, two months out, um, luckily. But, you know, even when we start tracking it again seven, eight months later, they're way below um, where they were before. And they never get back to 
the the, the pre-pregnancy levels, even when we track them 24 months out. And obviously, these are averages, right? There are some women who get back immediately. I have friends who run triathlons, and like they were ready to go run a triathlon, like seemingly immediately. Um, and and there are those those sort of folks. But uh, the average mom is not getting back to her pre-pregnancy levels, and that matters just for general health. That's important to know. But it also could matter if um, you know, these sort of measures of physical fitness are associated with job promotion or you know, retention decisions. Um, and so that, that's a really good example of unique data here available at NPS, um, something that the world broadly cares about. So you know, civilians, DOD, they both can care about that. And this uni- nice, unique policy change um, can get fit in there, too, just so we can then start evaluating, hey, does having more maternity leave help moms get back to normal more quickly um, or not? And it's important to know that, too. So that, that's what I'm most excited about right now. And I'm currently seven months pregnant, so I may have some selfish interest in all of this, too. <laughs> but, you know. How does, how does your research go from research, presentation to Navy leadership, and acceptance of policy? And is the Navy accepting of your research findings or research findings in this realm? I'm too new to have a good answer to that yet. So I've only been here for three years uh, at this point, coming up my three-year anniversary um, uh, of being at NPS. Got to go get a new cat card. But uh, I am excited to see how this plays out. The longer I'm here, the more people I meet and just the more my network is growing. And um, so it'll be interesting for me, at least, to see uh, how this plays out the first time. And I'm going to probably learn a bunch of lessons along the way um, and compare that to, you know, how I'm doing all this in 20 years uh, when I've been here for quite a while. Um, But I think good evidence of a program helping moms and potentially dads can be valuable to DOD leadership as they consider is 12 weeks the right amount of leave for moms? Should dads have different amounts of time as the Marine Corps considers 12 months potentially? Um, uh, Letting new moms take a sort of leave of absence. These are policy discussions that are happening and so hopefully my research can inform that um, within the DOD and it's also relevant for the civilian world. The, um, the the federal policy for federal workers starting on October 1 is that they're going to have 12 weeks of leave available for new parents. So that, that's something that's rolling out right now. Um, unfortunately my baby is due September 1 so I do not get that but it's real rough for me um, but nevertheless it is something that is expanding um, in the civilian sector um, and then sort of the next logical question is well how do we get that outside of just the the uh, federal workforce and into the the broader population what is the right number is it six is it 12 is it 18 um, and this is some evidence to help build on that. And so I view my role in the whole process as being not an advocate for one policy or another. When I'm looking at the data itself, I might have something that I, I hope is true um, or, or suspect is true, um, but I'm just trying to figure out what actually 
happened in the world. This policy happened. There was a sudden change. Did mom's um, health change following it? And, and what can we learn from that? Just curious, have you looked at all at uh, data from the communist nations or, you know, the, the previously communist nations of uh, Central and Eastern Europe and their maternity policies of essentially three years of yeah, maternity I mean, leave? I mean, like Sweden and like the uh, Nordic countries have a whole lot of leave to, to and like, we're the only ones who don't have some sort of national policy. Uh, Papua New Guinea, us in Papua New Guinea uh, don't have, <laughs> shouldn't be accurate. Uh, um, so. The United States and Papua New Guinea are the only ones who don't have some sort of mandated um, leave. And so we are certainly on the extreme. Um, but, you know, Nordic countries um, have, you know, kind of the upper edges of, of that. Um, but it, it, we are the rarity in the world. Um, and there's been some great work um, looking at those other places. And like actually, you know, get, giving dads leave, for instance, can be helpful, not just um, for potentially bonding with the kid, but also like, for the mother who can then you know, go to a doctor's appointment and other things. And so there's all sorts of interesting things happening there with their unique data. Um, but in the United States, this is it's. Um, we're in a unique position here in the DOD to, to look at the outcomes. Where can you see some of your work going in the future? So I have a student, Captain uh, Amanda Henniger, who is um, really interested in dual mill families. And so that's a particular you know, environment where you're trying to navigate these two humans uh, mm -hmm. and their, their um, careers. Um, and they, they're trying to figure out families and whatnot. And so um, that kind of family dynamics is really interesting to me. So I have some other papers that are really about family dynamics and, and so on. And so that's sort of like the potentially a, an area where um, I could see kind of exploring that in a little bit more detail. There's also um, just this really rich information on like social networks that is available or like that um, uh, could potentially be explored. Uh, within the DOD environment, because we can see people move around, and we know where they came from, where they're going. We also know who else has kind of moved around with them, like who who you've been exposed to before. Um, and I think there are some opportunities to exploit that a little bit and and play around, um, see how that changes your outcomes. Mm -hmm. So, if you were the CNO or the SecDef, what uh, what change would you make, or what kinds of changes would you make? I honestly do not. No. I think an important skill that I'm trying to develop is to say, I don't know when I don't know. And the amount of things that they know that I don't know is immense. And the interest that they're trying to balance is just beyond the scope of what I, I um, really know right now. So I kind of struggle to answer that question. You would mentioned that as a potential question, and I just didn't come up with sort of a, this is the thing, because there's so much that I'm still learning about being in, um, in as a part of the Navy. And so I don't have a solid answer. Sure, well, that's that. reasonable. Um, but now, what if there was no trade-offs to be made and there was unlimited no I mean, I work in the econ department. There's always trade-offs. <laughs> I can't say there's no trade-offs. I'm going to be kicked out. <laughs> um, but, I mean, I think child care access is something that I know and care about. And if we want to retain females in 
um, the military, just improving child care access, especially in like certain parts of the country. It's like hard to get your kid in or whatever else. Um, that might be an area um, where there could be some potential changes. And like there's there's plenty of people working really hard um, um, in all those offices, but um, just I think more money sure. and uh, just a little bit expanding the accessibility might mm -hmm. be might be an option. It's also what I'd do if I was, you know, the dictator of like the <laughs> the, the United States and, and sure. uh, uh, could make some policy pronouncement I'd want sure. wider access to child care um, there because I think it um, addresses a, a bunch of problems potentially all at once. Mm -hmm. So if you could publish, well, okay, variations thereof as well. Uh, if you could publish only one successful, realistic, achievable paper, what would the title be and, and give us a rundown of the abstract? Maybe not surprising, given my a couple of my prior answers, but health, uh, work, and parental supports, evidence from the Department of Defense, or something like mm -hmm. that for the title, and just like, running down what I discovered from this research that I am currently working on. Maybe I should be thinking longer term when you ask that sort of question, but I'm just really in the, the, the midst of this project, and I can't think about much else, I guess. Sure. Um, but I'm hopeful that this will be sort of the successful, um, interesting, useful paper that I I want it to be. <laughs> um, and I'm still early enough in the beginning phases that uh, I, I still have hope that, that, that that's how it's going to work out. Um, but I think it has the potential to be really useful for the world. And so I'm excited for it. Just having this chance to have health data and work performance data and this policy change and being able to track people longitudinally over time is such a unique set of circumstances that I'm, I'm really excited about it. Fantastic. What's the best investment in yourself that you've ever made? I'm really happy that I took the leap and got the PhD. I could have gotten a fine job with the master's degree could have lived a very happy life. I would have been making money uh, a little bit sooner and not being a grad student for an additional five years. But I wouldn't have been able to do the sort of work that I'm able to do now. I wouldn't get to teach. I wouldn't be here. And so I am very lucky that that investment worked out. Um, and I'm very happy that I made that investment. Um, very. That, that the PhD was not a certainty. It wasn't something that I, you know, grew up knowing that I wanted to get a PhD at all. Um, I don't think I knew anybody with a PhD growing up in northern Minnesota, uh, but I am very happy that I made that choice. What advice would you give to your 23-year-old self? Most of the things that you are worrying about do not matter <laughs> all that much in 10 years, let alone two years. So relax, enjoy this time because the world will change and your, your life will change in very positive ways. But uh, enjoy being 23. And looking forward, uh, what is your what has changed about your future self in 10 years? I probably want to give myself right now the same advice uh, in 10 years, where the things that I am worrying about don't really matter. If that paper doesn't get out for another month, it'll be okay. Those sort of timescales in the long run, it's not going to really matter. And instead, I should enjoy 
this time frame where you know I have a four-year-old, a two-year-old at home, uh, another kiddo on the way, and I have fantastic students, fantastic colleagues, and um, just really kind of getting to know the world of NPS. So enjoy that while while it's all new and fresh. Great. What is the one thing NPS students should take away from their time here? Enjoy it. When else are you going to be paid to just study the world, think about the world, just spend time trying to uh, understand the way things work? It's uh, a rarity and a gift. And you might not feel that when you're up late studying on a Saturday night, um, but find ways that you can uh, make the most of your time here because it's it, can be a really cool opportunity if you take advantage of it. Great. Well, hey, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming to the Trident Room. Um, and uh, I look forward to talking to you some more in the future. All right. Sounds good. Thanks. All right. Thank you. Thanks for joining us in the Trident Room. This episode was recorded on June 30th, 2020. For more information about today's guests and topics, please visit the show notes. The Trident Room has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at tridentroompodcasthost at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu backslash tridentroompodcast.